my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi folks, uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, October 26, 2011. <laughs> We're going to do our light edition today. Spending a lot of time writing on the phone, trying to catch up with my podcast. Giving up on my hairstyles, though, you know, just wear hats now. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result... We've got to do the comparative work. Now, part of what we do here is, well, it's it, everything we do is educational, but some things more directly educational than others. Some are, kind of, some are indirectly educational. Can you do indirect education? Inductive. Inductive. At, yeah, never mind. I'm reaching here. I'm just, I'm, I'm reaching. It's, it's one of those things I just got off the phone uh, with, uh, with a friend, and boy, that was a great conversation. Anyway, I have to share that with you. Hey, by the way, this reminds me. Um. If you know anybody that is a computer programmer that knows how to program for uh, the iOS, uh, knows how to program for the iOS or for the Macintosh platform, um, if they're looking for a job, the folks over in at Logos, the, that's the Bible software, um, they could use about 10 more programmers. And I got that from the CEO of Logos himself. We ha I had a conversation with him a couple of days ago. And uh, just want to say, if you know somebody who's a computer programmer who's looking for a job, can program for the iOS or the or the Macintosh, uh, Logos is hiring. So, and uh, just literally go to you know logos.com and uh, you know and and you know figure out how to get a hold of their HR department and 
submit your rev- resume. So I, I just wanted to say that, you know, I, I, I Logos is one of those programs that I really enjoy. At times, I'm a little frustrated with it because on the Mac and the iOS doesn't have the features that I have come to love and expect and want. So uh, this is purely selfish on my part. If you, if you're a computer programmer who needs a job and knows how to program for those uh, platforms. Uh, out of pure selfishness, I want you to apply for those jobs so that the features I want can... <laughs> that just sounds terrible. Anyway. <laughs> but uh, but uh, even though that sounds terrible, it's true that they are looking for a programmer. So I just want to let you know. And I got that from the president of Logos himself. So a uh, great guy, by the way. And, um, and very happy that he responded to... Uh, let's just say a customer complaint letter that I had sent, and uh, and I got the, I got to talk to the president of the company. That tells you something about the character of the president of the company, and tells you something about the character of the company itself. So uh, I'm excited, to, you know, that the uh, you know to help help them out by potentially sending some programmers them their way. So anyway, uh, today on Fighting for the Faith, it's our light edition, and today we're going to continue our lecture with uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt on the commentary uh, uh, on uh, Luther's commentary in the book of Galatians. Uh, this is part four of the lecture series, and uh, it, it and so uh, without any further ado, let's just dive right into it. Here's Dr. Rosenblatt. All right. Uh, again, our our enterprise in these hours together is very, very prosaic. It is not glorious. It's not high-flying, but our source is glorious. It's St. Paul in Galatians, and it's Luther doing commentary on St. Paul to Galatians. So the source is glorious. What Rosenblatt does is very prosaic and low-level. Um, we've spent our time doing Chapter 1, I'm going to go into Chapter 2 and try and get through half of it today. And next time we'll get through the second half. And all of 1 and 2 is a defense of his apostolic status. You say, why is that so important? Well, first of all, because of his opponents, the false apostles, who were using arguments to downplay who Paul was. We've gone through them and he's going to mention them again today. And the upshot of that is, if he doesn't win this one, two-thirds of your New Testament you have to tear out and throw. The first test in the earliest church for canonical status was, can it trace to apostolic sources? There were five others, but that that was the number one. If I can't trace Paul to apostolic sources... I'm going to say to myself, he was a brilliant man, he had the best of Greek education, he had the best of Jewish education, but I don't have to read it as scripture. That's why it's important. So one and two were on that subject and almost only that subject, Luther says. Then we'll go to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ's death alone. But first of all, he's going to do two chapters of I do have the credentials, they are lying to you, and so forth. So it's feisty, and it's on um, why you can trust me as much as anybody who walked with him for three years. I got it directly. And then he goes out to prove how they can know that he's telling the truth when he got it, says he got it directly. Okay? All right. Luther... On 
chapter 2. We'll get through about half, God willing. Verse 1, that after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Luther, bitter conflict, remember, in which Paul was so deeply involved. He taught that the Gentiles were justified by faith alone, that is, without works of law, without circumcision, without nothing. Just Christ's death. Um, comes to Antioch, told the disciples what he had been doing. Those raised in the tradition of the law rose up against him and said that preaching to the Gentiles about liberty from the slavery of the law was intolerable. Always the same arguments. You're cutting off the limb on which you're sitting. There'd be no basis for Christian morality. Always the same arguments. Same ones Pelagius gave. Uh, same ones Wesley used later on. Uh, as if our fear of somebody's lack of sanctification should cause us to adjust the content of what's in the gospel. Okay? Paul and Barnabas stood strongly against them, said the Spirit was given <clears throat> to those who just heard the gospel with faith, and the Spirit approved that by granting them the Spirit, and without the law, and without circumcision. Jews and the Pharisees would not accept Paul's teaching. They insisted on circumcision of the Gentiles and that it was necessary if you were to be justified. This is Luther all over again. Um, Paul fights back uh, vigorously. Luther, insert. I don't think this is the same controversy that Luke describes in Acts 15. This one appears to have happened much later, because Paul had already been preaching the gospel for almost 18 years. Luther, the law of God is very forceful and impressive to the human heart. How could the Jews not be stirred to take a strong stand in favor of the law? Luther says, understand how this looked to them. It's the same in us. The law impresses us terribly. They had been trained in it from infancy, had received the law from God himself. You add to that the strength of habit. It was understandably difficult after conversion for them to give up the law immediately. They thought it still had to be observed. And Paul gave them some time to get that. He was gentle with the Jewish converts, but there's no doubt he was pushing to justification isn't by the law at all. But he gave him time. Uh, says Luther, God tolerated this weakness for a while. Uh, he does the same with us when we were under the papacy. He's patient and he's merciful. Still, says Luther, we must not abuse this goodness of God. We must follow that the gospel is free. We must finally keep following that trail, even though it's counterintuitive. So, Paul's opponents had on their side the law of the land. They had the example of the apostles, they said. And they said, we have the example of Paul himself. You know, he circumcised Timothy. Now, if Paul had answered that he circumcised Timothy not out of compulsion, but out of Christian charity and freedom that is, to keep from offending the weak. Who would have believed him, says Luther? The crowd's response would have been, you say whatever you want to say. The fact is, you did circumcise him. 
Paul went up to Jerusalem to compare his gospel with that of the other apostles, says Luther. Not on his own account, he was confident of what had been given to him from heaven itself, but on account of the Galatians. Huh? And, says he, with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me, he associates with two witnesses, not necessary, but just throws it in for what lawyers call corroboration. <laughs> Barnabas, Barnabas testifies for Paul and against the legalistic Jews on this matter, so he throws that in for good measure. Verse 2, I went up by revelation. I went to Jerusalem as God told me to. Now, don't, let's not anybody take that for listening for God's voice and what he's telling you to do. Huh? We're not Pentecostal here, and uh, the canon is not open in that kind of a way. You're looking for dreams, visions, and voices. Or don't tell me you believe sola scriptura if you're listening for dreams and voices. Okay? Without this... Uh, Paul would have been stubborn, would not have gone, but it's to promote and establish the truth of the gospel. Luther, Paul did it to restrain or at least to appease the Jews who were believers but continued to argue about the observance of the law. He made it clear the Gentiles did not have to be circumcised in order to be justified. He said, I was not going to run and live in vain. And I laid before them the gospel. Luther, finally, after 18 years, Paul went up to Jerusalem and spoke with the apostles about, quote, his gospel, which I preached among the Gentiles, he says. Among the Jews, Paul had generously permitted the law and circumcision to stand for a while, and the other apostles had done that too. 1 Corinthians 9. But still he maintained the true doctrine of the gospel, which was elevated above the law, above circumcision, above the apostles, above an angel from heaven even. He cites what uh, Paul said to the Jews in Acts 13, how on account of the weakness of some, he allowed them to go on in Jewish practices. So long as he understood it had nothing to do with their justification. Hmm. Paul concedes that he discussed the gospel with the apostles. But he says, they didn't teach me anything. Quite the contrary. My view of the gospel prevailed with them. They did not side with the arguments used by the false apostles, but quite the opposite. The question was singular. Whether men could be justified without the law or whether the law was necessary for justification. I told you, this, this book has one point, and it does it 43 ways from Friday. And here we are again. Whether the gospel, does the death of Christ itself and only simply trusted or simply believe it, believed in save? And I don't even want to know how many churches that bear the name Protestant are going to give the wrong answers to that because I'll, it'll depress me for weeks. But the true answer is, it does justify without works of law. None. Not an ounce. So, Paul's answer, uh, the Gentiles indeed can be justified apart from any circumcision, any works of the law, nothing. God gave them his Holy Spirit uh, to prove it. 
All right, lest I somehow be running or had run in vain, Luther, this does not mean that Paul was in doubt about running in vain in his own case. It means many supposed that Paul had preached the gospel for 18 years in vain because he had given the Gentiles freedom from the law. He was continually gaining ground that the law was necessary. It was, it was, the idea was gaining ground that the law was necessary for justification, and the only remedy for this situation that, um, was that Paul, by revelation, had gone to Jerusalem. The conference made clear that the gospel preached by Paul was not contrary in any way to the doctrine preached by the other apostles. Luther, note here in passing that the righteousness of the law has this power that those who teach it run and live in vain. Again, I'm not even going to think about how many Protestants would give the wrong answer to that because it'll depress me for a week. I, I don't incline to depression or alcoholism, but that would do it. <laughs> Verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was Greek. It shows what the outcome of the conference was. The Gentiles should not be forced to be circumcised. Titus chose to be circumcised so as not to offend those to whom Paul was preaching. He's free to do that. Paul did not reject circumcision as damnable in itself or compel the Jews to give it up, but he did want them to realize that circumcision does not justify. It's not part of column A. It's over there in column B if you want to do it for ceremonial purposes. As long as you don't have it worked into column A, fine. You're free to do it. Okay? Overall, case of the Jews, the case of the Gentiles. It's detailed with regard to the Jews and with regard to the, Jew, uh, to the Gentiles. Luther summarizes, no one should be forced to be circumcised or come under the law or come under Moses. Uh, and no one should be prevented from being circumcised, as long as you don't have it as justifying. He says, in our past, there's been bitter controversy over this, Augustine and Jerome. And he says, very simply, Jerome didn't get it. He imagined that what was at issue was not very important. You ask about those who quote the fathers. The fathers can be anywhere from brilliant to really dumb, depending on which page you're on. Huh? It goes the whole spectrum. And here even the great Jerome uh, didn't get it. But Luther says, this is serious business, and it deals with the gravest of issues. Is the law necessary for justification, or is it not? Later we're going to see Peter and Paul in direct controversy. Um, Paul allowed anyone who wanted to be circumcised to be circumcised, so long as it was not understood to be necessary for their justification. He taught both Jews and Gentiles that they should be free from the law, free from having to be circumcised in order to be saved. The patriarchs were justified by faith alone and not by circumcision or by the law. He might have permitted Titus to be circumcised, but when he saw they wanted to compel him, Paul absolutely refused. Had the compellers had their way, they inevitably would have concluded that circumcision was necessary for justification before God. 
says Luther, in our day, our opponents stubbornly insist that human traditions cannot be dropped without putting salvation in jeopardy. Answers Luther, there's one demand, and it's faith in Christ and getting rid of your dreams of your virtue. That's got to die. That's got to drop dead. And in its place is Christ dying for you. And that's the only thing put in its place. Paul's victory on this, Titus, at a meeting of the apostles, was not compelled to be circumcised. A very powerful argument, says Luther, against the false apostles. The apostles ratified or approved this. Paul's conclusion, your false apostles are lying to you. They're using, saying that they were trained by the apostles themselves to trick you. But it's I, not they, who have the apostles on my side. And I can prove it from the case of Titus. Paul did not condemn circumcision. He did not, nor did he compel anybody to undergo it. Luther, it's a very wicked thing to attach sin or righteousness to ceremonies. He does not mean baptism in the supper. You know Luther. But all that other stuff that was commanded by the Pope, and you were, if you didn't obey, set up to be worried Have I done enough? I would parallel that with evangelicalism, but it'd be way too much fun. (laughs) Well, it's Wesley. Okay, four or five. But because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to them we did not yield submission even for a moment. In order, it's a hina clause in Greek, in order that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He explains why he went up to Jerusalem. Not to be confirmed by the apostles, not to become more certain about his gospel, but rather, quote, so that the truth of the gospel might continue in Galatia and in all the Gentile churches. There's a true gospel and there's a, there are false gospels. Says Paul, I was stubborn, refused to yield to the latter. The truth of the gospel is this. Our righteousness comes as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ alone without any works of law. The corruption of the gospel says we're justified by faith, but not without works of the law. This is his target. He wants to kill it, put a a wooden stake through its vampire heart, and it needs it very much. The formula in Luther's day was faith formed by love. And he wants to kill it. Scholastics, Aquinas, and what what it means is genuine, genuine faith, which will show itself in love, which is part of your justification. And he wants to kill it. Wants to kill it. Um... Human reason has the law as its object. It says, this I have done. Justifying faith has Christ as its object, and it does not say what I have done or deserved. It asks, what has Christ done? So what the scholastics have taught about justifying faith, being faith formed by love is an empty dream. Faith that takes hold of Christ justifies, period, not faith that includes love. 
it'll show itself later, but don't bring that from column B over into column A or the whole gospel's lost. Leave it in column B. It belongs over there, it's true, leave it over there. Hey, Luther, I'm saying all this to you that you may recognize that when Paul speaks of, quote, the truth of the gospel, quote, he is vehemently attacking the opposite. He's condemning the false apostles for teaching a false gospel. And his severe condemnation, they slipped in to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order that they might bring us into bondage again. I love that verse. Eh? They train themselves in every way to attack us, trap us, convict us in the presence of the church. And when Paul saw what they were doing, he resisted vigorously and said, we did not permit the liberty we have in Christ Jesus to be imperiled. Man, you do this in an evangelical church, and they'll think you're doing some new teaching. You say, wait a minute, this is just straight St. Paul. All our calls in the White Horse Inn during the first year were the same call. What is this strange new teaching? And Mike and I looked at each other like, holy smokes, things are worse than we thought. Strange. All we were doing was St. Paul. And here were Protestants, or sort of Protestants, calling in and saying, what is this strange new teaching? And then we knew the status of the preaching they were getting. Okay. False apostles wanted to require the observance of the law as necessary for justification. Paul would have yielded to them, says Luther, had they meant nothing more than charitable patience. But they were seeking to bring Paul and all the adherents of his doctrine into bondage. Back into Jewish bondage or worse. Says Luther, in the same way, we are willing to concede even more than we should to the papists. But we will not give up the freedom of conscience we have in Christ Jesus. We will not let our consciences be forced into any work, foods, feasts, fasts, as though we could be damned for failing to do any of these. Luther, but we cannot obtain the, con the concession of this freedom, obtain the concession of this freedom any more than Paul could. As they refuse us freedom, we refuse to concede them that, to them that faith formed by love justifies. We are obliged to be rebellious. We are obliged to be stubborn with them. And that's worth putting into your memory. We were obliged to be stubborn. The gospel was at stake. Says Luther, the issue is grave and it is vital. It involves the death of the Son of God. And if faith yields, it means the death of the Son of God is in vain. He's going to say that later on. To yield on this one is to lose everything. Okay? Our stubbornness on this issue is pious and it's holy. Yo! Now there you can get Germans to help. Huh? That's part of the German DNA. When you say, resist and stand firm and be stubborn, and the German says, I can do that. Hmm? I've paid, remember, I've paid my ticket of admission on this. I'm one quarter German through my mother. So I've paid my ticket to the playing field. Verse 6, and from those who were reputed to be something, 
What they were makes no difference to me. It's again, proud refutation. He doesn't call the true apostles themselves by any honorific title. Doesn't minimize their position. Um, They had great reputation in all the churches. Paul doesn't subtract from that. But it's a way of giving a contemptuous answer to the false apostles. They had sought to cast suspicion on Paul's authority, uh, pitting the authority of the apostles and their students against Paul. And he wouldn't stand for it. He gives a very proud answer to the false apostles. Paul's gospel and ministry are not to be jeopardized or jeopardized on the basis of anybody's name or title, not even an angel from heaven. Now, this was one of the false apostles' strongest arguments. They had said that they had close association with Christ for three years, heard all his sermons, had seen all his miracles, and they said that that they themselves had preached and performed miracles while Jesus was still alive long before Paul, who, by the way, never knew Christ, never saw him. And the Galatians should therefore consider whom they should believe. Paul, one guy, all by himself, latecomer at best, or the most excellent apostles who'd been confirmed by Christ himself and long before Paul. Paul's answer, so what? Your argument, qua argument, proves nothing. Let the apostles be ever so great. Let them be angels from heaven. It makes no difference to me. makes no difference to me how great Peter and the others have been, how many miracles they performed. What I'm contending for is that the truth of the gospel be preserved. Now, that seems to be a rather weak rebuttal. Paul disparages even the apostles and their deeds, but he gives a reason for the rebuttal. He doesn't just let it stop there. God shows, says Paul, no partiality. He cites Moses, who says this not once but many times, and with this he silences the false teachers. Says Luther, as though he were saying, you pit against me those who are reputed to be something. But God doesn't care about such things. God isn't swayed by the office of an apostle or a bishop or a priest. He permitted the apostasy and damnation of Judas and Saul, rejected both Ishmael and Esau, both firstborn. Luther says we find throughout the scripture that God rejected the very men who who according to external appearances were the best and the saintliest. Says Luther, we always do this. We esteem outward appearances. We show such respect for position. It's a natural vice in every one of us. And we pay more attention to it than the word. But God does not want us to admire and adore the apostolate or the persons of Peter or of Paul. Rather, we are to hear the Christ who speaks through them. Then a little discussion about distinguishing God and the masks of God. Now there we've got in our midst the expert uh, in Dr. Simonetto. Uh, And he can do this much better than I. But he has a little section on this. I'll defer to my betters. It is not given to the secular or the unregenerate man to discern between God and his veils or masks. They can't do it. 
Now, so far, says Luther, we've dealt only with the veiled God, for we cannot deal with God directly and face to face. The greedy man hears that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of God's mouth. He eats the bread, but he fails to see the God behind the bread. He adores only the veil or the mask. He puts in his trust in these things. God uses these veils in order to turn our eyes upward to him alone. We're not to trust the veils, finally. Um, but the sinful man just can't discern between God and his veils. Luther says, I'm saying this to keep anyone from supposing that Paul simply condemns these external masks or social positions. He doesn't. The masks are also creatures of God. But in the case of justification, God shows no partiality or regard on the basis of veils. We're not to worship and adore them. Uh, there's nothing wrong with circumcision or uncircumcision until you start ascribing righteousness or justification to it, and then it goes no matter who's backing it. So we must speak differently in matters theological from the way we speak in matters social. God wants us to respect the magistrate. He's a veil of God. We're just not to attribute divinity to these masks and trust them instead of him. I'm to honor the judge or the magistrate. He's a mask. And I'm to do it for the sake of God who made him and gave him that position. Uh, he even says of respecting the pope here because he's a mask. Gives him more than I would. Um, in the world, God wants the observance of order, and the masks are part of that. Thus, Paul refutes the argument of the false apostles based on the authority of the apostles. It's beside the point. It's irrelevant to the real issue. The issue here is not distinction between social positions. It's a divine matter, and it concerns God and his promises whether the word is to have priority even over the office of apostle. <clears throat> Paul, to preserve the truth of the gospel and keep the word of God and the righteousness of faith alone, pure and undefiled, let apostleship go. An angel from heaven, Peter, Paul, let them all perish. Those, I say, who were of repute, added nothing to me. Here's why I can keep St. Paul. I neither learned anything from them nor defended myself against them. Luther, this is not a fault on Paul's part. If Paul had yielded submission here, the gospel would have perished. Why it's necessary we should have this same pride and not yield to the Pope today. All we aim for is the glory of God and the righteousness of faith Nude, alone, sola, only, faith in Christ, pure and sound. But, says Luther, we can't get that concession from them. So, we become immensely proud in God and refuse to yield the least little bit to angels, to Peter, to Paul, to a hundred emperors, emperors, or to a thousand popes. I, Luther, will here be stubborn, unmovable, be called rebellious, be called unyielding. He quotes 1 Corinthians 13. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and yields, Luther, 
Not so in the case of faith. It will not stand for anything. None of that stuff. So Paul says, I simply report how I had been preaching the gospel among the Gentiles, and when the apostles heard this, they attested that I'd been preaching it correctly, and they were amazed I'd gotten it all directly from heaven itself. All right. Um, <laughs> seven and nine. But on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for the mission to the circumcised worked also through me uh, to the Gentiles, and when they perceived the grace that was given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be the pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. There's the connection between Paul, who never walked with Jesus for three years, and the ones who did walk with Jesus for three years. There's why I don't have to cut out two-thirds of my New Testament text. Okay? Luther, a powerful computing evidence against the false, false apostles. Paul's uh, tactic, or his argument, the false apostles cite the authority of the great apostles against me. But I cite the same authority against them and in my own defense, for the apostles are on my side, not theirs. He turns the argument back on the ones who are making it. These were Peter and John were reputed to be pillars, Luther. This is no idle talk. They were. The apostles were revered and honored throughout the church, had authority that was genuine to approve and declare. Both Peter and Paul preached Christ to both Jews and Gentiles. Why Paul, why does Paul assign the gospel to the uncircumcised and Peter and the others to the circumcised? Said Luther, it's easy to answer in the book of Acts. The other apostles had remained in Judea and Jerusalem until God called them elsewhere. Paul was called to journey through Gentile lands. Luther, this is clear proof that all the apostles had the same calling, the same commission, and the same gospel. Quote, for he who worked through Peter, etc., the false apostles bragged, the gospel is powerful in Peter. Luther, true, but Peter received this power from heaven. I have that same power. I didn't receive it from Peter. I received it from, from the same God and the same spirit who worked through Peter. Luther lists miracles done through Paul, Acts 19, 13, 16, 20, 28. In short, Paul refuses to be regarded as an inferior to the rest of the apostles in any way. Um, Luther, Paul is obliged by a divine necessity to be proud against Peter. Now, we're not going to get to the, the heart of that till next Sunday. But we're going to tackle in some degree of depth, I had to oppose Peter to his face. I'll give you a clue. The charge you have to read very carefully. It was not that they were doctrinally in disagreement. What Paul charged Peter with was having no courage. He had been eating non-kosher with the Gentiles, and everything was fine in Christ Jesus. 
and then a group from St. Louis or uh, Jerusalem. arrived and he and he withdrew from eating with the Jews and Paul says you weren't acting in accord with the gospel you were preaching it is, it's a matter of balls it isn't a matter of doctrinal disagreement okay? all right we'll do that next time so uh, they Perceive the grace that had been given to me when they heard of my call, my commission, the miracles God performed through me, so that many Gentiles had come to a knowledge of Christ and had received the Spirit without the law or circumcision, they glorified God for the grace that had been given to me. There's your key. Paul points out that Peter testified to his being a true apostle, Paul, one who'd been taught and sent neither by Peter or the other apostle, apostles, but by God himself. Can you imagine that examination? Remember when we were down by the Sea of Galilee? Let's ask him about that one. Remember that? And he answered it all as if he were there. And they extended to him the right hand of fellowship, that is unanimous consensus, we're companions in the same doctrine. We have fellowship in the same doctrine. We're completely in accord in everything. And good grief, you got it all directly. Your gospel and ours are the same. Luther, this is clear proof that there is only one and the same gospel for Gentiles and for Jews, monks and laymen, young and old, men and women, no matter how diverse our masks or vocations or social positions are. Luther speculates, if the believing Jews at that time had observed the law and circumcision under the condition permitted by the apostles, Judaism would have remained standing till now, and the whole world would have accepted the ceremonies of the Jews. But because they insisted on the law and circumcision as something necessary to be saved... God could not stand for it. That's Luther. Therefore, he overthrew the temple, the law, the worship, and the holy city of Jerusalem. So Paul has proved by both divine and human testimony that he preached the gospel currently, the same true and genuine gospel that the apostles taught. Thus, everything the false apostles cited against Paul is found to support Paul instead. And what is at issue? whether believing in Christ saves all by itself. Just that. I'm morally defunct. I have nothing in my account. I've offended God, and I'm dying betting all the blue chips on that cross that afternoon because it's all I got. That's what Paul's commanding, and that's what Luther's commanding. Against adding anything to it, anything that we do, and if this battle hadn't been won, we would have become a Jewish sect and disappeared and would have deserved to disappear. Paul believes the whole gospel's on the line, and Luther believes the same thing in his fight in the 16th century. All right.
Um, you can take a look at that Only Let Us Remember the Poor, which is the very thing I was eager to do. And that brings us to verse 11. I'm going to defer on that until next Sunday, even if we have to take one more Sunday. But I want to start with Paul opposing Peter to his face in some detail and allow some time for questions on that uh, next time we get together. But we made it through almost half of chapter 2, and God willing, we'll make it through most of chapter 2 next time. And then when we get to 3 and 4, we're in the real guts of it all, in a good sense. Okay, all right, enough for the day. Uh, I'll have some coffee here and questions. Go ahead. You realize that if we didn't have this connection between Paul and the other apostles and the examination and the approval, if you're like me, you wouldn't read Paul's writings as Scripture. I'd read them like the Apocrypha. Interesting, bright, helpful, spiritual, whatever, but not Scripture. Oh, dear, the philosopher. <laughs> Can we talk, let's talk about circumcision. Um, now, I've heard it argued that circumcision was replaced in the New Testament by baptism, which to me makes it look like circumcision was a sacrament, not a work of the law. Now, maybe a lot depends on what the, the super, so-called super-apostles were saying. In, in the Jewish understanding of it in the first century. Right. So, so it's the argument, Paul is not arguing circumcision wasn't a sacrament. He's arguing the way you're treating it is as a work. There it is. And so he could, he could actually make, mount a similar argument against uh, some understandings of baptism. Is that yeah, also if, true? If you're going to make it a ceremony or... Something in addition to the gospel, rather than delivering the gospel, he'll do the same thing. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what would he say about, okay, just as a related thing, what would he say if, if someone said, you know what, I kind of like burning goats and bulls, right? So I, I want to keep doing the sacrifices. Would he say that was okay, too? Probably, if you didn't have it. If you didn't say, any... this is how I'm, I'm doing this work to be saved. Uh, yeah, then it's out. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> well, the 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 one I'll turn the one I'll turn you to here is Brian Garrish of the University of Chicago, Oxford University Press, and called Grace and Reason, and it's been the greatest greatest book on Luther and reason in our day. Garrish is goofy himself, but he's a good historian. He stays with the facts instead of bending them. Um, but I think David Anderson student of mine at Christ College who came from Salt Lake City and was held, headed to the Melchizedek priesthood of the Mormon church and was roundly and soundly converted to Jesus by hearing Walter Martin on the radio, showed up to work for Walter Martin at Christian Research Institute when it was still in Irvine and said to Dr. Martin, what should I do? He said, go to Christ College and study under Rod. And he did. Well, later on, he did his DPhil at Oxford. His major reader was Alistair McGrath, who said he would take students of mine, even without a master's, if I trained them. And his second reader was Dr. Montgomery. And Dr. Montgomery said to him, you're going to redo Garish's work better, and I'm going to help you do it. So it's from a German publisher. can't remember the name of it. You'd have to order. It's in English, not German. Lutheran Reason. And I think it's going to be better than uh, Garish's, though I've not made it past the first piece 
but uh, it's on my to read immediately. David Anderson, Luther and Reason, um, that same sort of thing. You're, and the major thesis of Garish's book is everything's okay with Luther till you make it part of what's justifying, and he explodes. Doesn't matter if it's church, almsgiving, uh, visiting Rome, works of Christian experience, Christian mystic. Uh, thank God Luther got that. I wouldn't have. He connected those dots. That's also a false ladder to heaven. Anything that opposes the sufficiency of Christ's death and blood to Luther's out. That's the thesis of Garish's book. Okay. Yes. Why does Paul seem to make a distinction regarding the gospel by calling it his gospel? Because of what was being directed at him at the time. Because the nature of the charges, as if his gospel wasn't the gospel. It was sarcasm. I know there's a, a sect, I think. I'll call it a sect, uh, in Christianity that follows Paul's gospel. They actually separated from, I don't know if you've heard of this. <laughs> yes. Uh, certainly they're in California. Um when, I've told this to you before, but I'll get it on the tape. They were struggling with what to call this branch that Luther was, you know, forming slowly. And his first reaction was, well, don't use my name. And they said, well, what should we call ourselves? He said, Christians. And they said, well, we need something more specific. Luther suggested, all right, there's the Via Antiqua, there's the Via Moderna, call us those who follow the Via Paulinica. And others said, that's just like a scholar. That won't make sense to anybody. It's in Latin. <laughs> you know, you know. Um, but that was one of the suggestions from Luther, call us followers of the Via Paulinica. A very simple, simple name. And it fit in with what was going on in 16th century. The Via Moderna and the Via Antiqua were different styles of educating theologically. And so Luther said, call us that. Um. Okay, I, I am ask, I'm going to ask for your input on a thought that Dale's conversation in Joan here prompted. Um, when you were speaking, you were talking about the veils, um, and we have external masks, mm -hmm. and that we're not to worship or adore them. And what seems to just keep jumping out is that we human beings are idol factories. Yes. Yes. And so whether it be yes. um, our pastor or or the apostles sure. or, or baptism, sure. I mean, if you turned it into a work, and it is my understanding that mm -hmm. many Protestant churches, oh, yes. that they have turned it into baptism as something, uh, outward observance, that you're, oh, it's your work to announce that I have accepted Jesus. So Straight it's not something, it, so it's idolatry. Mm -hmm. it, that's my question. Is it? That's how I see it. It's yeah. idolatry. So yeah. when we hold on to our virtue, we are being idolatrous. Yep. 
And that is the difference. It's got to die. And of course, it doesn't die. We kill it again and again and again and again and again. And Luther said, when we're up against death, it'll rear its ugly head with more strength than we faced it during when times were good. And all we'll see on our whole horizon is, what have I done during my life? And Luther said, unless you're long trained and recognize that, to tell it to go to hell and replace it with Christ who died for me. Uh, and that's why I want a pastor reading Christ into my ears as I die, because I know what the evil one's going to say, and he always does. You faker, you may be able to fool them, but you don't fool me. Your life was a mess. And Luther says, tell him, yes, and there are even other things that I did that you've missed. Let me add those. <laughs> and Christ bore them, so go argue it with him. Heard Jim Nesting in doing this just wonderfully yesterday. I have a quick one. Yeah. Uh, it's apparent that uh, Paul is probably the only apostle who was not a disciple. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Thank you. Yeah. In, in terms of empirical and chronological, he wasn't. Can you imagine? I mean, they didn't even trust him when he came in and said, I'm now a Christian. Huh, he'd been killing Christians and happy to do it. So it's, it's an offense when he comes in and says, I'm a Christian. I would have been in the party saying, keep your 45 on him as he talks. But he says even more. He says, I'm an apostle. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? You know, the, the apostles meant well when they prayed over the dice and shot him and it fell on Matthias, who's never heard from again. Uh, God had somebody else in mind to take Judas's place, and his name was Saul. Yes, in regards to uh, faith, Luther talking about faith trumping love, I understand that in, in regards to uh, the ultimate act of love is really defending the correct doctrine, right? We look at it that way? Yeah, However, yeah, you can look at it that way. I especially like it when we're talking about love. If we're doing 1 Corinthians 13. 13, I want to talk about not the husbands and not the wives, but Christ for both of them. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 is really about the love of Christ, which we approximate very badly. So when it lists faith and, and love in that list, and it says of the, great, the greatest of these is love, how do we look at that then? Well, that's where you find in the text of Corinthians that it's patient and kind and so forth. And Luther says, Absolutely. But if you add it to faith in Christ as a work you must do in order to be justified, then faith in Christ trumps love, and it's got to be thrown out at, in column A. It's got to go. That's just one way of working works. Another way of working works into column A. And Luther predictably said, uh-uh, here faith must be stubborn. Faith formed by love. It's a perfectly awful phrase. Rod, um, somebody told me not too long ago when we were t discussing this very point, they said, but God is love. God is love, so he forgives us everything. And I said, God may love us, but he's also just. And he's So how would you answer somebody who says God is love? Yeah, God is love, and if you're in his presence directly, you'll die. Because you haven't yet taken into consideration your sin. So, 
If you're to be in his presence and live for more than a millisecond, it's only because you've got the mediator next to you covering you. It's the only way. If I face Christ without a mediator, I know what happens. The same will happen to you. All right. Well, then let's call it a morning. We'll tackle the section on Peter opposing Paul when we get started next Sunday. Mm. Great stuff. Great lecture. (laughs) I was sitting there about ready to stand up and cheer during the part about being stubborn. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, I just, you know. Yeah, call me uh, biased, but I just think that that was just fantastic and inspiring in so many different levels. Anyway, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, this is listener-supported radio. Visit our website, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons, and thank you for your support. So what would you think? You know, I'd love to get your feedback. Um, my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. And I'm there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.